0: Welcome to episode 102 of Greater Than Code. My name is Coraline Ada Emke. I'm joined today by my dear friend, John Sowers. Thanks, Coraline. And I am here with Janelle Klein.
1: Thanks, John. And I am here with my fabulous co-host, Sam Livingston Gray. I do love saying your name.
2: (laughs) Why, thank you. I do love hearing it. Um, Hello, Janelle, and hello, listeners. And I am super thrilled to be able to introduce Katrina Owen. Katrina is an ecosystem engineer at GitHub. She accidentally became a developer while pursuing a degree in molecular biology. When programming, her focus is on automation, workflow optimization, and refactoring. She works primarily in Go and Ruby, contributes to several open source projects, and is the creator of the amazing Exorcism.io, which is a platform for code practice and programming mentorship. Katrina, welcome to the show. Thank you,
3: so happy to be here.
2: Or perhaps I should say welcome back to the show, because
0: you were with us back on episode eight
3: That's been a while.
0: It really has. That's like over 50 episodes ago, right? My math isn't great.
3: (laughs) Your math could use some work. Yeah, that's right.
0: (laughs) Wait, but I thought you had to be good at math
4: to be a programmer. (laughs) (laughs) Not necessarily arithmetic. So as
2: you probably remember from last time, Katrina, we like to start by asking everybody, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? And I actually don't remember the answer that you gave, so you can just surprise us all with whatever you like.
3: I also don't remember the answer that I gave. So here we go again. You know, I pack a mean dishwasher. I think that's probably my greatest skill. It does, to be fair, also spill over into other parts of my life. Like I'm really, really good at organizing and systematizing. I think systematizing is probably the best word.
0: Is that something you've always been good at or was that a learned skill?
3: I'm pretty sure it's a learned skill, but I think I started learning pretty early. No, no, tell a lie. We didn't have a dishwasher until I was an adult. But a pack a mean suitcase, trunks of vehicles as well. I do pretty well with those.
0: And you were a world-renowned Tetris player, ranked 5th in the in the world <laughs> from what I understand. Don't we
3: wish. Yeah, I didn't actually have uh, computer games either.
0: <laughs> you were on your on your way to becoming a molecular biologist and you accidentally became a, a software developer.
3: Yeah, I kind of got into the whole university thing a bit late. Um, so, when I was about 25, I realized that my life was probably over. I was a loser. I had gotten nowhere. There was no hope for me. All of those things. Sort of, I guess, mid life crisis if you aren't going to live very long. And um, I decided that I needed a plan that was better than what I had. And I liked science. And so, I figured. Since there's no hope for me, I could at least just become like a mediocre scientist, and that would probably be decent and fun. But I didn't have enough like high school to actually get accepted to university. So I spent the next two years learning uh, math and physics and chemistry um, so that I could apply to some university programs. So I did that, applied to several, got accepted to two that were both, I was interested in both of them. One was aerospace engineering, and the other was uh, genetics. So I ended up in the genetics kind of on a coin flip. So by that time, I was about 27. And when I started uh, university, I got my first computer. So at that point, I started playing around.
2: I love how that illustrates that you don't have to have grown up with computers in your crib to uh, become a good good developer. You don't have to have started with you know programming basic at age eight and so on.
3: Yeah, I felt really intimidated by all these programmers who knew how to program before they knew how to like tie their shoelaces or whatever. It was—it's. I had conversations with friends of mine who said, I don't ever remember a time when I didn't know how to program. It seemed like I would never catch up. And it turns out you don't have to catch up, for one. Tech changes all the time. And so there's always something new to learn. And so you kind of just forge your own path. And the other thing is that most people, when they're you know four, five, six, eight, twelve, they're not actually practicing programming deliberately. they're just kind of messing around. And so by the time we're all you know in our 20s, 30s, 40s, it seems like those early years weren't actually necessarily relevant.
0: I remember being at a conference once and someone was talking about the importance of how you tell your story, about how you got started with programming. And the path to software development via computer science is pretty well understood. You go to college, you get a degree, you get a job. But for the people who say they're self-taught that can kind of dead end the conversation because people who are self-taught typically don't talk about the process that they went through. They don't lay out a roadmap for other people to follow. And if someone is going to take the self-taught route, they may not know where to start. They may not know what practices are effective, what practices they should avoid. So I think there is an importance to telling the story of how people got into software development who did come from a non-traditional background. So exactly what were those early years with computers like for you?
3: The first thing that I did, I think that had anything to do with programming. Oh my goodness. This is even before I had a computer. So I was a bilingual secretary for several years in France. And I got really annoyed with all of my bosses who would send me Excel spreadsheets and ask for the same type of data every week. So I bought books about MS. What is the Microsoft SQL database thingy? Access. That's the one. So I bought books about that and I wrote uh, an app for them uh, in Access where they could Import the Excel spreadsheets and then get their own data. That was super fun. I even made a UI, which was probably the first indication that I should never do that. So that was fun. When I did get my first computer, I mean, the first thing I did was put Linux on it because that sounded cool. And then I started playing around in Bash, you know, renaming MP3 files in a script, in a loop, and stuff like that. My first year of university, I had a calculus course where one of the things we had to do was programming in Mathematica. And that was kind of the best thing ever. It got to the point where they had to kick me out of the computer lab at night because I wouldn't leave. And I think that's the first time that I really felt like this was something that I got sucked into, that it hit all those high points, the high notes of of making me feel good about myself, of falling into flow, of solving puzzles. I remember the day I discovered uh, floating point problems because I wrote a program and it was supposed to come up out with all zeros. And I had this page full of like this massive list of 0.0000, you know, bullshit, crap stuff. (laughs) And I had no idea what was going on. And so I went to the professor and was introduced to this, you know, super fascinating idea of of why floating point arithmetic is, is really complicated. I think those were the first steps. And then I started just playing with, I mean, the web was already a thing. So I started playing with HTML and PHP and all of those things. I think the path from playing to working was that friends of mine would ask for help and I would be able to help them. And then they started paying me to do it.
0: It was very similar for me where I actually tried to get a CS degree and after one class ended up dropping out and thinking that programming as a profession would not be for me. But I kept hacking on on side things. And uh, 1994, the company I was working for I knew all of the uh, geeks there. We would hang out and have cigarettes. And um, one of them came up to me one day and said, the company is going to build a website. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. They were like, what do you think that's going to do for your career? <laughs> and that was my first programming job. It's interesting how we can kind of fall into those things just just by following our interests and following our love for solving puzzles or whatever it is that gets you curious about cracking open an editor for the very first time. I don't have an access story, but we used FileMaker, which was an Apple competitor to access. And I did some similar things. Um, I was working in media relations, and I built a system for tracking press releases. And uh, it's interesting how just trying to solve a business problem often leads us to writing a program to solve a business problem. And that really doesn't change very much once you're established in this field, does it? Not at all.
4: I think you you pulled out an interesting point there about discovering that thing that gets you into the flow and that really gets you that, for lack of a better word, dopamine hit when you get the thing to work that time. And then you could keep going back for that. And I think that's one of the things that if you can get to that point, it makes programming really sticky because you can continue to search for that state and and find it. But it took me a long time before I actually got to that. And I didn't take programming very seriously until I hit that point. And then I was like, now I'm going to keep doing this.
3: One of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately is how a lot of people talk about you how you have to be motivated to do something. And I think it's actually the inverse. I've been reading a little bit about um, some of the scientific discoveries behind motivation. And the key thing is that you are motivated by success, not the inverse, and the size of the success is kind of irrelevant, which means that if you design something to have lots of tiny wins, you will help people remain and uh, motivated and have that motivation grow.
0: That's one of the reasons um, for the people that I mentor, I often suggest Pomodoros um, because a Pomodoro, not only does it help you by breaking a problem down into small chunks, but it also gives you that feeling of checking something off after your 15 or 20 minutes and accumulating those small wins. So that makes a lot of sense to me.
3: It's also one of the reasons we have lots of very tiny exercises on exorcism.
0: Yeah. that makes a lot of sense. There's a related concept.
4: Um, There's a book called the progress principle that I actually used to build a talk earlier in the year about how, One of the sources of satisfaction with work is progress on meaningful tasks. And that if you can keep that progress in mind, if you can not forget about all the progress you've been making, your work becomes far, far more rewarding and more satisfying. And it's that same thing where you keep that like, oh, I actually did get something done today. Even if I forget about it tomorrow, if you write that down and remember it, then you feel like you're making that progress and it makes everything much more meaningful.
3: I actually do this at work right now. I write AST parsers, so I use static analysis to figure out how many things I have to fix, and then I write a script that will output that in a markdown table so that I can paste it into my tracking issue every, you know, couple days. And then every, you know, 2 or 3 days, I will run my my static analysis script against master and post the new stats, and it's amazing how motivating that is.
0: I think journaling can kind of make you feel better about that sort of thing too i use a system um that i developed which is just a bunch of text files and folders organized in a certain way sometimes it's thursday or friday and i i feel like i haven't accomplished much that week so looking back at my journal i'm like oh this system that i've been working on didn't have feature x on monday and by tuesday it did sometimes we need reminders that, yes, we're making progress and yes, we've we've been making things better. And no, we haven't been wasting our employer's time. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I was actually just typing into the chat that I was noticing a
2: pattern in all of these examples of getting frequent feedback, like pomodoros give you a chance every 25 minutes to reflect on whether or not you did what you intended to do. And Coraline, you were talking about using that as a way to rack up wins, but I also was Thinking of it as a way to recognize that perhaps you went down a rabbit hole for the past 20 minutes and that's an opportunity to stop and notice that and adjust. And uh, in any event, the, the feedback seems to be a pretty important part of that.
1: I feel like it's more than that, though. I mean, we started this conversation going down you know, this track of this falling in love with puzzles and getting curious and obsessed and being able to lock into that sticky high of flow and how amazing that experience is. And then this, the reverse has happened in that we're motivated by success. And so I started thinking about this in context of like cognitive science and I'm thinking, okay, we're motivated by history in that the history of our experiences projected through What we're experiencing in the moment of right now is the resulting feels that we get from, you know, the response to whatever's in front of us. Right. And so that initial action that you want to take may be in dissonance with the way that you feel about it and that you may have to you know, five second rule, five, four, three, two, one, just count down, go, I'm going to override and do the thing. But then once you have a good experience, once you have history with success, then you can kind of lock into that wheel. And then, you know, these short feedback loops, I'm thinking you create like a cumulative positive reinforcement loop by adding more and more experiences rapidly to that flow wheel.
0: Janelle, what's the five second rule?
1: Uh, So I, my, my sister actually had me listen to, I'll have to look up the reference, but it was this short video on the five second rule. And essentially the, the challenge of motivation of I've got to exercise, I've got to do one of these things that I just don't want to do, but I know I need to do it anyway. I know it's good for me. I have this vision outcome dream in my head that I want to achieve, but trying to make myself do that when I don't feel like it is hard. And essentially, you've got about five seconds in order to switch from having a dream in your head to taking action on that thing before your body, uh, like, induces this sort of anxiety avoidance response toward that thing. And then once you confirm the avoidance, once you procrastinate and, you know, hit the snooze button, I'm not going to get up, you reinforce that anxiety avoidance, like your brain's like, Oh, I avoided that. I survived. Awesome. We succeeded here. Right. That's and so, vet. and you've got about five seconds to overwrite that before your, your alternate response triggers. And so it was a simple habit rule of, you know, you want to do something, you want to get up instead of hit the snooze button, you pretend you're a NASA <laughs> and you start counting down five, four, three, two, one and then you do the thing. You just get up and do the thing. And it's that last possible moment that you create for yourself to help motivate yourself to create, you know, that first success.
3: I actually came across the 5 second rule when I was trying to figure out some of my struggles with procrastination. And it was specifically, there was a video, like a five minute video about procrastination by the woman who came up with the five second rule. She said that procrastination is not about willpower, it's about ambiguity. And that this ambiguity, this lack of knowing exactly how to proceed, creates this massive barrier to actually getting anything done. So her recommendation was do the five, four, three, two, one, go. And then just spend five minutes on it. Like you don't have to do more. Just spend those five minutes and doing whatever that might even be relevant to the thing that you're procrastinating on. And often that will give you just enough insight into what was ambiguous. What do you actually need to figure out to make progress? It's super interesting.
4: Yeah. Not knowing the next step is such an impediment and it just feels like it's impossible to get started at that point. And so One of the things I've used in the past is spending the time when I have, you know, high motivation and high cognitive ability, you know, lots of willpower is spending the time breaking the task into smaller things so that the next action is really clear. So that then when it comes to actually doing the thing, that that step is a smaller step.
3: That's really interesting. I've heard another variation on this where if you have high motivation, spend that motivation on making a system that you can use when you don't have motivation. That's good.
2: Uh, one variation on this that I use, not intentionally, this is just something I stumbled into, is leaving a failing test at the end of the day. So that when I come back the next day, I have a single thing to focus my attention on. Otherwise, I just sit there going,
4: eh. I Michelangelo, this may be apocryphal, but I think Michelangelo had a technique where he would, at the end of the day, just take the, the chisel on the sculpture and whack somewhere. So there was a flaw that he would immediately
0: <laughs> have to focus on the next day. That's the reason that bugs make it into production code. <laughs> yes, because we're all artists. Just take a chisel to that complicated method and ship it. So um, Katrina, how does this conversation about motivation, how does that tie into the way you've designed exorcism? Has any of it like, sort of influenced?
3: Yeah, I spent a ton of time. So a couple of years ago, I realized that exorcism was either going to die or I had to bring other people in to help me think about it in terms of a product. And I brought in an amazing team, Jeremy Walker from the UK and his team at Thalamus. They came in with an enormous amount of product expertise. And what we did was we spent the next eight months asking questions. We asked questions like, at what points during learning are you at your most vulnerable what is motivation? How does motivation work? It's we and stumbled across a bunch of research around not just the fact that success causes motivation or creates motivation, but also various aspects that go into motivation, such as what people value. And that might be all sorts of things. You might value the process. You might value the social aspects of it. You might value the outcome, what it's going to give you when you're done. And the more different types of value you find in something, the higher your natural intrinsic uh, motivation will be. Another part of this was there's evidence that anything that is the opposite of supportive, so anything that is neutral to negative in terms of the environment Means that you have to decide every single day to keep going. Whereas anything that is supportive will let you avoid the impact on your decision fatigue. Um, So a supportive environment is really important. And then um, the third thing is what they call expectancies for success. You need to have a plan or see a plan. A plan exists to achieve success with this thing. And then that plan has to seem doable. You have to see all the steps, that all of those steps seem um, doable on their own. And thirdly, you need to believe that you personally are capable of following those steps. So in terms of exorcism, we realized that a lot of the conversations that were happening on the site were not supportive. Random people giving feedback in a situation where you're really vulnerable is actually not ideal. Um And, you know, we know this, the internet has proven this over and over, but it was not something that we had thought through or that I had thought through um, specifically in terms of what interactions will help support the learner. And so we redesigned mentorship as the core feature on exorcism, where before it was just kind of accidental. And mentorship is something that happens between you and a mentor. So people sign up to be a mentor. They sign the code of conduct. They're part of a mentor community where they can discuss um, and help each other figure out how to best give feedback or how to respond to something that might be difficult. And then this conversation happens in private. So other people can't just, you know, parachute into your conversation and have opinions about the stuff that you're writing at the moment when you know the, the least possible about a new language. So that really deeply affected the 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 research into motivation and the importance of being supported and being protected in this vulnerable situation had a huge impact on the new design of exorcism.
0: That reminds me of code reviews. I've definitely been in, in circumstances where, and this is probably before GitHub put in place the uh, requested reviewers, um, I've definitely been in, in places where I felt dogpiled by code reviews, especially early on at a, at a given company where everyone has an opinion and I'm maybe not doing things the canonical way for that organization. And uh, I did feel very vulnerable and the uh, responses that I got were not helpful and uh, just made me question the quality of my work rather than showing me a path toward improving it or making it more canonical. Do you find that maybe there's value in establishing those, those trusted relationships in terms of the people you request for code reviews?
3: Yeah, I think that code reviews are really tricky because they have so many layers and levels of feedback where it's really hard to correctly set expectations for a code review. Um I'm on one of the code review rotations at GitHub for the API and so we get, you know, dozens of PRs every week that we need to go through and we have We have some very specific criteria or standards for what we are looking for in an API. So there are all the, like, this is how we want APIs to be built. At GitHub, that's one thing. But the most important thing for us is that we're not accidentally releasing breaking changes. So our reviews are very, very meticulous in terms of looking at status codes, headers, payloads, et cetera, the types of, of things that, oh, you can't suddenly return a null if we never did that before um, because there are certain clients that don't handle that correctly. So there, there are some really interesting things that I've learned over the past year with respect to code reviews is, is that I think you're right that a trust relationship It's much easier to do a code review when you have a relationship of trust between um, the author and the reviewer. Um, I know (laughs) we received this enormous pull request a few months back Mm -hmm. that was adding new APIs. There were so many, we had very many feelings. Like it was a really difficult review to do. Um, We got in a group hangout for two hours, four of us, to go through it and figure out how to communicate the changes that we wanted. And we failed at doing that well the author of the pull request felt, I think personally, not attacked, but felt like this was a problem we had with them personally in some way. Like it felt personal. I don't know. I don't know exactly. But the outcome was that we were upset that our recommendations were being, I guess, pod. Is that a a word? We, We felt like our recommendations that were coming from a place of we want the API to be the best possible thing were not being listened to. And they felt like we were requiring a million changes when they were in a hurry to get some feature out because of a deadline. And it, it just wasn't a good situation. And, and it turned out that once we, when we wrote our recommendations in a different way, it was like, oh, and they fixed it in an hour but the way that we had written these recommendations we had provided all of the background context for why we think this is important and so it looked like this massive change and that wasn't it wasn't the right time to do that they were in a hurry um and they didn't need all that context they just needed to know what we needed them to change i think for code review another thing is we talked about ambiguity and motivation i think that a thousand line pull request adds a lot of ambiguity to the review process, like, what am I supposed to be looking at? Where am I supposed to begin? What are we actually reviewing for? If I review just the APIs, is someone else going to properly review all of the other parts? And so one of the recommendations that I'm working on um, at GitHub to propose to the engineering managers is to recommend that people make uh, much smaller pull requests than has been the the tradition at GitHub. And there's a ton of research that says that anything over 300 lines, you're not going to catch the errors You're not going to look at it in detail. And also, it's going to take a lot longer for someone to even start looking at that pull request. If it's a thousand lines, we're going to go do all the short ones first. And so if you're in a hurry, figuring out how to carve a really tiny piece of your change off and submit that separately for review, I think is going to um, help make sure that the conversation is focused exactly on what you need it to be focused on. So you can help set expectations around here's what I'm trying to do with this pull request, here's why it happened, here's ha- what we tried and how it failed and why we're doing it differently this time, um, and here's the feedback that I need from you. But also, we're not going to put it on some wait list for, you know, 10 days before we actually get to it, which also I think helps build that trust between the authors and the reviewers because now you have that quick feedback cycle and you're not feeling ignored.
2: And everybody gets those quick successes and yeah. more of the.
4: Yeah, and I think it also is going to influence your design a little bit if you're setting up the, the code in such a way that you're going to carve off those small chunks that you can add on. The changes are smaller, and they're easier to test, and they're easier to comprehend as little bytes. And so I think it's going to influence the whole process of that feature from that point going forward.
2: And I just want to point out that this is another example of a word, Katrina, that you used when you were describing your superpower, uh, and that word was systematizing. And that really, to me, is like if I had to pick one word to describe you, that would probably be one of my first choices because uh, you're better at that than anybody I've ever met. Just being able to figure out like, what about this is bothering me? What about this would be cool? How can I repeat that? How can I teach others how to repeat
3: that? Thank you. I think this is one of the reasons why I obsess about refactoring is because it's a system and it's a system for improving things. I Actually, don't care much about building features. Like, I'm super not interested about Greenfield projects and building features and product and all of that, despite the fact that, you know, Exorcism is totally a project product and all about that. But I really get into how can we look at all of these 550 API endpoints and figure out how they're inconsistent and what that inconsistency says about the Pattern of the bugs that we're seeing about the things that are hard about building new APIs. Like, are we copy-pasting the wrong things when we build new APIs? <laughs> um, I think I, so. I think refactoring probably comes out of this systematizing ability that I seem to have.
2: Actually, reminds me of something else uh, about exorcism that I think I heard you talk about at some point. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but haven't you spent some time trying to figure out what questions are helpful at a particular? Point in an exercise, so questions yes. that a mentor could ask.
3: Absolutely. Actually, someone who's been doing a lot more work than this than I have on exorcism is Maude Vries which is uh, she's a developer in in the Netherlands and an amazing mentor. And she has been working on looking at different points in your process of learning a new programming language. What are the questions that will be helpful to you at that time? So for example, when you're first getting started with a new language, it's really helpful to talk about the idioms around syntax, for example, or how you typically like to loop or where you like to put your variables or how you like to name them. If you don't have that conversation early on, then when you have started feeling fluent in the language and someone comes and complains about your variables, now you're going to feel a little bit condescended to and a little bit maybe confused about why we haven't had this conversation earlier. So she's looking at which questions at which time are going to be helpful in terms of helping you go explore the next relevant thing to you, which I think is a really interesting process.
4: Is that something you're going to work on systematizing into the exorcism platform?
3: Absolutely. We're working on it now. We have a curriculum team who's looking at um, how do you put this into a system of are we using levels? If so, how many? What do those levels represent? We have been talking about progression paths. So how do you take a concept and go from simple to complicated? And then how do you analyze your track, if you're a track maintainer on exorcism, how do you analyze all the exercises on your track to see where they fit into this matrix and where we're missing exercises? And then lastly, how do we provide feedback guides for each exercise to all of the mentors so that they can... Look at an exercise and quickly see that, oh, here, the most important thing to talk about is this duplication. Everything else is just details. And you can, once you've gotten the duplication sorted out, you can approve the exercise and say, here's some food for thought, things that might be useful as you move on with your next exercises.
4: That sounds incredibly helpful. I had done some mentoring on a, on a different uh, learning platform, and uh, there wasn't really that sort of that level of guidance, but that would have been really amazingly helpful.
1: So we were talking to Mandy a bit before uh, the show, and she brought up your prior experience in the circus. And I must ask, because I've never met anyone that's been in a circus before, and I'm super curious about how your experiences in the circus have like shaped all of these things you're doing. It seems like they'd probably have so much influence on how you think about these mentorship problems and thing, exercises you're trying to build You know, this beautiful thing. Yeah, I think you're giving me more credit than I'm due. Um,
3: well, I don't really think very deeply about how circus has affected how I think about learning and mentorship. I think circus. So here's here's the deal. I failed at circus four years in a row. I was trying my best to get into the top circus school in France for four years, and every single year I failed. Now I got a lot closer every time. The first year I was not even a blip on their screen. The last year I made it to the two week, you know, the top 40 of the list who got invited to a two week audition. Unfortunately, I broke my leg during the audition. So I spent the entire audition with my leg in a cast. Um, It's amazing how much that affects your balance, it turns out. So I ended up placing 22nd and they only took the top 15. So I never actually ended up in the circus. I was in training uh, to be in the
1: circus and um, uh, did not do a very good job of it, honestly. So going back to this motivation slant on things, you know, What did it take for you to fail four years in a row and keep on going and keep on trying and keep doing better? Because instead of having a success pattern that was driving you, you basically had repeated failure and then this just high agency, I'm going to go after and do this thing anyway. I mean, that's amazing in itself.
3: I have been terrible at decision making my whole life and this reflects that, I think. I was motivated by the successes that I felt that I had along the way. So I got a lot better at dancing. I got a lot stronger. I got a lot more flexible. I got a lot better at acrobatics. I got a lot better at weightlifting. Oh, my goodness. I was a monster there for a while. It was great. I didn't feel like the failures were absolute rejection. I felt like they were feedback um, about what I needed to work on next But after four years, I realized that I had kind of gotten myself into a rabbit hole where I didn't really know why I was doing it anymore. And so it was affecting, like if I had gone into the circus, um, my career would probably be over by now. I'm 41 now and um, I would probably be teaching or maybe if I ended up in choreography or something, I would be helping produce uh, shows. But in terms of acrobatics, I was already quite old compared to the other people who are trying to get into the school. And so I think that I just got this tunnel vision where I didn't realize that I should be making choices. I should be looking, I should be broadening the scope of what I'm looking at, of what the opportunities and possibilities in my life are, and really take a look at what would the outcome be if I chose to do something different? Um, how would that affect my life? What are the negative aspects of working in the circus? And am I willing to spend the next five years? Because if I had gotten accepted to that school, I would have spent five years in training before I even
1: could apply to Cirque du Soleil or whoever. Interesting. So what I'm hearing is there's this difference in mindset between zooming in and being hyper-focused on the details of one area and then realizing I'm not sure why I'm even really doing this anymore. Like that, that vision of yourself and that future maybe didn't make sense. And then he shifted to this mode of like, take a step back and you're, you're scanning the landscape, like looking around at the different potential mountains out there that you could potentially climb. And then, you know, looking around expanding your horizons before you decide what to zoom in on. Does that sound right? That sounds right. I love the image of looking around
3: at the various mountains you could climb, because that really gives you an image of, is this a worthy mountain? Is this a worthy obstacle? Um, And I think that's really important. I think that one of the problems with tunnel vision, which I have a natural bias towards, is that I'll systematize myself into a local optimum, and i think that taking that step back and looking at the other mountains and saying and and really asking yourself if if that obstacle is a useful one that will take you to an interesting place is the view going to be a good a good one i think that's a useful question to ask
2: we're talking about applying to this school every year for 4 years it occurred to me that a year is a really long time to spend preparing to apply and improving your your skills especially in the context of Coraline bringing up pomodores earlier and, you know, those being a really short feedback cycle, it occurred to me that maybe having more frequent opportunities for feedback on a shorter timescale would help reduce possibly one of the factors that might have gone into your decision, which was the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, what do you think about that?
3: I think that's spot on. The year that I made the most progress, I was I spent that year in a prep school for circus. So they literally were wow. preparing students to take the various uh, in, intro, like, intro exams to the the main um, the top circus schools in the world. So there's one in uh, Montreal that's really good. There's one in Moscow. There's one in outside of Paris. And there are a couple more. Um, there are probably way more now because it's like 20 years ago. But I spent the year at the school. And so every day I was getting
1: feedback on the various skills that I was working on. Would you mind talking a little bit about just what it's like to train, say, for acrobatics? And sure. What is that experience like? So
3: uh, you probably do about 20 to 30 hours of physical training per week. Most of that is not acrobatics itself. It's preparatory training in terms of flexibility and strength and strengthening specific Uh, muscle groups, and specific types of movements. So uh, if handstands are a thing that you do a lot, flexibility helps, and there's an amount of strength that you need that is just sort of a threshold amount. Now, anything over that is helpful. If you've ever broken your leg and had to do physical therapy, one of the things that they'll have you do is stand on one foot. And at first, that's like three seconds, and then you fall over. Basically, you have to grab, grab onto something because you are so weak that you can't even stand on one leg. And this is sort of the same thing with handstands is you need that core strength, but then there's also all of this subtle understanding how your body falls. And so there will be, you know, two or three hours a week of strengthening your shoulders, of, of pushing in exactly the right way, of uh, being up against a wall and standing for as long as you can on your hands, of working in pairs where you're deliberately leaning in different directions to figure out the mechanics, the subtle mechanics of bringing your balance back to center when you're slightly off balance. Um, for acrobatics, it's the same thing. There's So we were doing uh, trampoline training. We were doing all sorts of weightlifting and uh, floor acrobatics the people who wanted to do specific types of acrobatics, for example, the, oh, I don't even know what these things are called in English, yen, uh, which are, I guess, aerial straps, they would do certain types of training that the people who wanted to be on the tightrope. So that's, a com- again, a completely different set of, of exercises once you decide what special, specialty you want to work towards.
1: I'm still thinking about my, my original thing of wondering where the parallels are between like circus life and software and peer mentorship school. And, you know, some of the things you brought up, I think are really interesting patterns of running these experiments with your body of deliberately leaning, feeling your body, feeling yourself shift off balance. And then learning your muscles of how you bring your body kind of back in and center and, and learning that, you know, control through physical experimentation and kind of patterning that way. And it seems like all the same principles apply where doing these small experiments and succeeding becomes this reinforcing loop, right? I managed to stay balanced for a little bit longer is its own success. It seems like this would affect how you teach I mean, in general, like when I was listening to your questions about, you know, how you go about breaking down the process of teaching someone a new skill and mentoring someone and understanding the types of questions and how they change over time based on the types of things they need to focus on in that moment that you could do deliberate leaning, if you will. How do you bring your body back in center when you're coding, you know, what does center look like when you're coding? I mean, it seems like these concepts exist in software too.
3: I think you're probably right. I just haven't thought about it much. I think one of the more influential things that happened during my training for circus was that it was always a team thing. So I was always working with people. It's not Something that comes natural to me to do that well. Um, So I learned a lot of things about interacting um, and how to work together towards making an experience. And I think that that's kind of key in software. We don't usually produce widgets; we produce experiences. And I think that um, how you work with other people to do that is a really interesting thing. Sarah May gave an amazing talk called "The New Theory of Teams" at Brighton Ruby a couple years ago, and. She talks about how every person who is involved in the process of producing an experience has an enormous effect on this on the final product, and the earlier they become a part of the process of creating that experience, the more of an effect they will have. It's especially interesting because not everyone is visible in the final product. So if you're doing a theatre production or a circus production, a lot of the people who might have just a tiny role or not yet ever even appear on stage might have had an enormous impact on what the final production actually looks like and what that experience feels like. And I think that's the same in, in teams of software developers where we don't really – a lot of people get credit <laughs> – and because they're doing the visible work and i think that there are a lot of people who do the invisible work the glue work the support the the work of supporting helping other people get things across the finish line the ideas the helping think through why this is a bad approach and how to find a better approach that is very invisible and i think not often appreciated
0: I think that really ties into open source, too, where we think of open source contributions as code contributions. And we judge people by their GitHub graphs and ignore a lot of the invisible labor that goes into a successful open source project in terms of community building and outreach and mentorship and all of these things that don't translate into a pull request.
4: Yeah, I was thinking you're you're at the same time as you're producing the experience for your customers. You're also producing the experience of being on that team.
3: That is so true. How do you be a good apple? I was reading about bad apples and good apples. I think that I'm somewhere in a neutral apple where if other other people are complaining, I will turn into a bad apple and complain with them, but if other people are good apples, I will that will reflect on me and I will take their behavior and and share in that, you know, the joy of working together um and producing something amazing together. And I want to figure out how do you be a good Apple, like just on your own? How do you come into a team and be a good Apple?
2: So I want to bring this back just briefly to something you said much earlier in the show, Katrina, which was about how people who are programming at 8, 10, 12 years old aren't really doing, I I don't know if you actually use this phrase, but they're not really doing deliberate practice. And I just want to point out that many of us who start programming or continue programming into our 20s, 30s, and 40s, we also don't do a lot of deliberate practice. True. <laughs> and um, I was actually telling somebody yesterday about this time that I watched you do a uh, workshop at RailsConf in 2013. And I noticed that you, you were typoing the word initialize a lot. And I mentioned this to you later. And you said, oh, yes, I noticed that too. I'm going to do a bunch of typing drills which was totally shocking to me at the time. But hearing now that you had this background in doing circus training where you did all of these deliberate uh, exercises to strengthen specific habits and muscles, uh, it actually makes a lot more sense to me now.
3: I did do those typing drills, by the way. Oh, good. I, I can now spell and type initialize.
0: <laughs> I'm so glad to hear it. Um, one thing that strikes me is, the, uh, is how the appearance of expertise can seem kind of magical to an onlooker. I know if I'm at a circus and I see a performer, the thing that strikes me is how effortless their emotions are and their performances, when in fact, a lot of work has gone into making it look easy. And I think about how that impacts people who are new to our field, who see us accomplishing these, these great things or delivering this great experience. And wondering, like, how could I ever do that? I don't have the natural talent for doing that. I don't have a knack of it. And how do you show them that there is a way forward, first of all, but that it does involve a lot of work?
3: I wonder if it's about being honest when you're struggling, especially as a senior developer. I remember watching a just a screencast video of Aaron Patterson, and I can't remember who the other person was. It was probably Zen Spider. They were pairing on something, and they and at some point, Aaron says, "I have no idea what's going on or something like that, expressed his, you know, um confusion and amazement at uh, what on earth could this be doing. And it felt so. Wonderful to realize that there are moments when Aaron Patterson is confused. Can you imagine that there are moments when he doesn't know what's going on? And I think that making that visible around you is important. I think that it's really tricky, especially if you are part of an uh, a group that is underrepresented in tech. Um, especially if you are a part of multiple groups that are underrepresented, because uh, showing failure, showing like you often have to keep proving that you know, proving that you are capable, proving that you are expert enough, competent and deliberately saying i don't know might actually put you at risk so i think that on the one hand for the the people who are new it's so important to see that the people who are experts actually have moments where they're confused and don't know don't know how to approach something but have a process for figuring out how to approach it but i also think that there is it's too easy to say everybody should say i don't know because there are there are people for whom that is a great risk
2: Absolutely. Which is why as somebody who sits at the intersection of almost all of the privileges that there are, is that I try to make a point of being as uh, transparent about that as possible, because it's a risk I can take.
4: Exactly. So at the end of the show, we like to do uh, reflections where we talk about the things that are the takeaways for each of us that really stood out from this conversation. Uh, For me, the combination of The talk about short iterations and early feedback as a way of both creating and maintaining motivation uh, is really useful. I've I've been thinking about the Agile process a lot lately because I'm sort of about to go to some training. Uh, And so it strikes me as as sort of like I'm putting Agile in your Agile. So like the the team process is Agile, but now my personal process is Agile. And then down to the Pomodoro level
0: where my hours are Agile. (laughs) And I think it's an interesting way to think about that. I think a lot of the uh, the themes that we talked about today, we never mentioned this explicitly, but they have to do with creating a sense of psychological safety and being transparent about your process, the vulnerability, Katrina, that you mentioned about being transparent about not knowing things, the experience of learning a new language through a tool like exorcism or through other forms of practice or mentorship, and code reviews that we discussed a little bit, all of those Require um, a sense of psychological safety to be effective. And there was that Google study that showed that psychological safety was one of the factors, one of the most important factors for a successful team. So I want to think about that some more on my own time about how to create that sense of safety in code reviews in particular, because I think that's one of the ways that developers interact with each other um, most frequently. And um, so I want to think about how I can Make an effective code review where I'm sharing the information that needs to be shared to to improve the code or to make it more readable or to make it more performant or what have you in a way that is respectful of the time and energy and practice that went into creating that code.
2: So there's been so much good stuff today. And honestly, every time I hear you talk, Katrina, I'm inspired to try to be more systematic and deliberate about how I approach the things that are important to me. And uh, before I get into my takeaway from today, I should mention that whenever Janelle joins us on a call, she captures phrases and snippets of conversations and drops them into our group chat like little breadcrumbs to mark the path that we've taken. And uh, listeners, this isn't a contribution that you directly get to see, but it definitely makes the show better. And I just want to mention on air that I'm so thankful for that contribution. Thank you, Janelle. So um, looking back at some of those breadcrumbs, one thing that really sticks out to me is being new and interesting. And one thing I should look into further is this five second window in which you can actually change your behavior and increase your motivation. And uh, that's something that I'm trying to focus a lot on in my personal life lately. So I'm definitely going to go and read more about that as soon as we're done here.
1: Thanks. So many interesting threads through here. The main thing that keeps standing out to me is this idea of feedback loops as almost like spirals that are reinforcing toward the positive or reinforcing toward the negative. And I'm kind of associating this now with this concept of what a good apple and a bad apple means of being in a in a positive feedback loop space or a negative feedback loop space and how the people around us, how safe we feel if we feel rejected and pushed away, or we feel like, Hey, I can see the steps. I can see the path to get there. And I am capable of doing that thing. You know, I'm going to carry the torch and, and, you know, lead the way down that path and, and how those positive reinforcements of success end up continuing to contribute to those spirals. And then you've got this whole social interaction team dynamic And this experimentation dynamic and all of these conversations, you know, if I, if I look at it from a systematizing kind of way is that when we're in that five second window and we have a choice as to whether we're going to be a good apple or a bad apple, whether we're going to reinforce positive feedback loops in our environment, or we we're going to feed off, you know, the negative feedback loops and shut down that in those five five seconds, we can make a choice to go and decide, I guess, it's a decision about where you're going to focus. It's making a choice of how you're going to invest your energy in the next few moments, the next five minutes. Totally meta, but that was awesome,
3: Janelle. (laughs) So one of the things that Sam said is that Sure, we don't really practice programming when we're, you know, four and five and eight. But also when we're 20 and 30 and 40, we also often don't really practice the craft of programming. I think that's a really interesting observation and relevant because probably a lot of people who are listening to this are sort of in that mid-career part where you are no longer panicking most days, like most challenges They'll come at you and you'll be like, yeah, I got this. I know how to do this. Did it before. Been there. Got the T-shirt. Your comfort zone is big enough now that you can handle most of what your day job is throwing at you, which means that you're not pushed up against the margins anymore. And that means that you're not being forced to learn, which means that learning or improving now has to be a deliberate choice. Now, there are definitely ways that we have of, you know... Improving, like quitting a job and starting another one in a slightly different industry or vertical or something, or in a new language. But I think that very often we don't push ourselves to do that. And I wanted to make a recommendation. There is a course by Cal Newport. He's a computer science professor at Georgetown University, I believe. Is that in DC? Anyway, he's a computer science professor. And the course doesn't have anything to do with computer science, which I think is fascinating. It has to do with the art of uh, art of improving your craft. And so he got together with uh, Scott Young, I believe is his name, the guy who did the MIT challenge, where he did all of MIT's four-year curriculum on his own in one year. And also uh, he did the year without English where he traveled to four different countries, spent three years, uh, three months in each country um, and only spoke that language. So uh, forced himself to learn that language. They got together and made a video course called Top Performer. I think it's topperformer.com. And they walk you through a really well-designed process of designing your own crucible, designing your own project that is going to force you to develop valuable skills, then it also leads you through the whole process of figuring out right now in the career that I have, in the direction that I'm going, what are the valuable skills?
0: So I found that really useful.
4: Well, this has been a great conversation. Really, really lots of stuff to
0: think about. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show again, Katrina. And you're welcome to come back anytime.
3: Oh, thank you. This has been really, really great.
0: We should mention that if you want to continue this conversation, you should go to patreon.com slash greater than code, sign up at any level of support and get access to our Slack community where we talk with our guests, we talk with each other, we explore these ideas in a place that is very safe and very supportive. So you should really think about supporting us.